Previously on Breakdown. I think it would be safe to say that if people have information in particular about Georgia and interference in the Georgia elections and they were in the White House, that will not bar us from wanting to talk to them. And when you add in the mix of the significant statistical anomalies and sworn affidavits and video evidence of outright election fraud, I don't think it's just your authority to do that. But quite frankly, I think you have a duty to do that, to protect the integrity of the election here in Georgia. I mean, it's scary because it's I remember when I was sitting there listening to the subcommittee meeting, I was like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Right. And really, from my where I'm sitting now, I believe that the entire hearing not only was done to kind of push out misinformation because, you know, OAN and Newsmax were live streaming it. And nobody really could push back except for Elena. And I was like, you know, we have no idea who these people are that are testifying or whatever. I think it was done for misinformation. Welcome back to Season 9 of Breakdown, the podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that takes you inside Georgia's most important cases. I'm AJC legal affairs reporter Bill Rankin. And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. We have never seen a case like this in Georgia before. But this is not the first time a member of the executive branch has been in legal trouble. So episode six will be in large part about history. We'll look at how more than 200 years of case law will come into play in this proceeding. Plus, we'll explain why the lead prosecutor is finding herself on the receiving end of some criticism. It's a monumental blunder in regard to the special grand jury, because there was already people arguing that it was politically motivated. This is Breakdown, the Trump grand jury from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. No matter how this case plays out, it will certainly be one for the history books. No president or former president has ever been indicted. There's not much of a playbook for Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis to follow. Some vice presidents have been formally charged with a crime. The first one goes back a ways, a long ways. That would be Aaron Burr, one of the nation's founding fathers and the man who killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. He was vice president during Thomas Jefferson's first term in office. During Jefferson's second term, the president learns that Burr is trying to wage an armed rebellion and get several states to leave the Union. Jefferson has Burr arrested and brought to trial in Richmond. Presiding is John Marshall, the nation's fourth chief justice and one of the most influential jurists in U.S. history. At Burr's request, Marshall approves a subpoena to be served on Jefferson for some of his papers. 
That very decision would be cited by Chief Justice John Roberts in Trump versus Vance. That's the case where the U.S. Supreme Court denied then-President Donald Trump's request to put a halt to the Manhattan District Attorney's efforts to obtain records from the president's accountants. Burr is found not guilty at a trial in 1807. Next up is the president who was actually arrested. What follows is an account by the Washington Post, which confirmed what transpired in an interview with the city's former police chief. It happens in 1872 at the intersection of 13th and M Streets, just a few blocks from the White House. President Ulysses S. Grant, an accomplished horseman and driver, loved to get in his horse-drawn carriage and race through the city. There had been complaints about speeding carriages, especially after a mother and child were run over and badly injured. Police officer William West, a black man who fought in the Civil War, is assigned to investigate. At one point, West looks up and sees a carriage barreling toward him. Sure enough, it's President Grant. When West raises his hand, Grant brings the carriage to a halt. After West tells Grant he is setting a bad example, the president apologizes and says, it won't happen again. But the next night, West sees Grant racing through the city and commands him to stop. West, in a 1908 interview with the Washington Star, explains what happened next. Grant tries to weasel his way out of it by saying he didn't know he'd been going so fast. West recalls saying, quote, I am very sorry, Mr. President, to have to do it, for you are the chief of the nation and I am nothing but a policeman. But it is my duty, sir, and I will have to place you under arrest. West takes Grant to the police station where the president posts a $20 bond. But when his case was called for trial the next day, Grant is nowhere to be found. Okay, a speeding ticket doesn't exactly compare with a grand jury investigation and possible felony charges, but we did have a sitting president being arrested, and it's quite a story. Far more on point is the Watergate scandal that put Richard Nixon on the precipice of being indicted. It all starts with five men being arrested for breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Hotel on June 17, 1972. We were dealing with matters that had no precedent in in history. We had no law books to go to, and we couldn't find anything that gave us any guiding uh, uh, light or that served as a beacon, you know, to to where we'd know what to do. And neither could I go to the history books. It was not only that I didn't have any anything uh, from a legal standpoint, I had nothing historically to go to. That's Leon Jaworski in an interview years after he served as the special prosecutor investigating the Nixon White House. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis may be feeling the same way right now. Jaworski oversaw a federal grand jury investigation that led to the convictions of Nixon's chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, chief domestic advisor, John Ehrlichman, and attorney general, John Mitchell. And Jaworski's team was primed to go for the big fish. They certainly were in favor of it. If you, it was almost unanimous that Nixon should be indicted for the cover-up. Um, we had a pretty strong case for his cheating on his income taxes. That's New York lawyer Nick Ackerman. He worked for Jaworski and his predecessor, Archibald Cox, in the special prosecutor's office. In his book, The Right and the Power, Jaworski wrote, I had no doubt the grand jury wanted to indict Nixon. So it was a pretty decent case, um, but you know he was named as an unindicted co-conspirator in the cover-up, 
And the evidence there was really overwhelming. It was all based on tape recording, um, as well as there was testimony, obviously. But what was the clincher there, and is also the clincher as to why he wound up resigning, uh, was because of the tape recordings. And one in particular, where he tried to get his aides to contact the CIA, who in turn, he asked them to contact the FBI to stop the investigation into the burglary. Of course, Ackerman is referring to the White House tapes from the system Nixon had installed and which recorded conversations inside the Oval Office. Jaworski's office prevailed in a unanimous decision by the U.S. Supreme Court forcing Nixon to turn them over. And they are absolutely devastating. Jaworski wrote that the grand jury wanted Nixon to come in and testify, but it never happens. Facing certain impeachment, Nixon resigns on August 9th. 1974. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Here's Ford after being sworn in. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Our constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Here, the people rule. Ackerman says Jaworski didn't obtain an indictment against Nixon while he was president because he wanted to see what played out in Congress first. They named him as an unindicted co-conspirator at the time. They didn't indict him because we were right in the midst of the impeachment proceeding and Jaworski believed that the uh, impeachment proceeding should go first. Now that Nixon was out of office, there's nothing stopping the special prosecutor's office from asking the grand jury to indict him. But on September 8, 1974, one month after Nixon resigned, President Gerald Ford addresses the nation. I do believe with all my heart and mind and spirit that I, not as president, but as a humble servant of God, will receive justice without mercy if I fail to show mercy. Finally, I feel that Richard Nixon and his loved ones have suffered enough and will continue to suffer no matter what I do, no matter what we as a great and good nation can do together to make his goal of peace come true. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, have granted, and by these presents do grant, a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon for all offenses against the United States which he, Richard Nixon, has committed, or may have committed, or taken part in during the period from July 20, 1969, through August 9, 1974. 
Jaworski wrote in his book, The Right and the Power, that he had his staff research the issue to determine if they could challenge the pardon and still bring an indictment. But in the end, he decided not to pursue criminal charges. And some people feel that that might have cost Ford the election in 1976. David Greenberg is a professor of history and media studies at Rutgers. So great was the anger over sort of sparing Nixon a possible uh, trial and uh, conviction. And to this day, I think people, historians, Americans uh, are divided over that question. But certainly that's the one time when it seemed possible that uh, a foreign president, a recent president, uh, would see see justice uh, for crimes he committed in office. Greenberg says Ford was in a tough spot. You know, I think this is a hard call, and I really uh, do see it from both sides. Um, Ford was in a tough position. Uh, his initial remarks on taking office and saying our long national nightmare is over, I think really did strike the right tone. And I think even in his justification for the pardon a few weeks later, uh, one can see some merit in his position that the country had to move on, that more time focused on Nixon, focused on Watergate, uh, was going to further uh, you know, eat at the country, tear the country apart. On the other hand, it was an invasion of justice, and it did somewhat um, mitigate that claim that no one's above the law. I mean, if that was supposed to be a lesson of Watergate, well, it was being undermined by sparing Nixon uh, the reckoning with justice. And I think over the years, people have seen it differently. You know, at the time, it was an unpopular decision. Claire Finkelstein, the founder of the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law, has strong feelings about Ford's decision to pardon Nixon. I think that uh, President Ford did the country a great disservice by pardoning Nixon. That's an act that's been much criticized, but the long-term effects of it have never really been thought through because what it suggested is that we're never going to be able to hold even a former president responsible for his crimes. That would have been the moment for the country to seize in terms of presidential accountability. Uh, and, uh, and of course, the country was deprived of seeing Nixon behind bars. In 2001, Ford received the JFK Profiles in Courage Award for his pardon. Greenberg says it was an acknowledgement that the decision, while unpopular at the time, may have been the right one. As for what's happening now? I think now with Trump, actually, that is getting re-revised, and people are now sort of swinging back to the position while Nixon probably should have seen his day in court. Greenberg, a presidential historian, sees a lot of parallels between Nixon and Trump. You know, both men had this, have in Trump's case, this intense will to power, and both found it very hard to acknowledge that they were wrong, that they may have lost. You know, people forget in 1960, when Nixon lost the uh, presidential election to John F. Kennedy, he and his men challenged the election in state after state after state. And uh, he gives a kind of half-hearted concession on election night 
As I look at the board here, uh, while the, there are still some results still to come in, uh, if the present trend continues, uh, if Mr. Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, will be the next president of the United States. And I want to say that one of the, I want to say that one of the great features of America is that uh, we have political contests, that they are very hard fought, as this one is hard fought, and once the decision is made, we unite behind the man who is elected. Trump, of course, made no such concession, half-hearted or otherwise. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. So there's that similarity, this sort of the refusal, the unwillingness to acknowledge defeat, to part with power. Um, I think more than that, there's a kind of um, vindictive streak, um, a, 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 an appetite for vengeance that really characterizes both men. Now, there are a lot of differences too. And one of the differences I have pointed out is Nixon, when we heard his secret White House recordings and people heard him talking like a gangster and cursing, were shocked because it was at odds with the very sort of sober and upright public persona that he tried to project. With Trump, that private-public distinction isn't there. What Trump would tweet out was as raw and vulgar as what Nixon would say in private. And so there was, I mean, you could say Nixon was shameless, but there was some sense of shame that kept him trying to seem upright in public. With Trump, it really is shameless. He really um, didn't mind being uh, you know, seen as someone who was coarse and vulgar and angry and nasty. If anything, he kind of wallowed in that persona. We need to point out why Gerald Ford was in a position to succeed Nixon and then pardon him. As the Watergate scandal was being investigated, so too was Spiro Agnew. Before becoming Nixon's vice president, Agnew served as Baltimore County Executive and the governor of Maryland. Federal authorities found Agnew had been taking kickbacks from contractors while he served in office in Maryland. The payoffs continued even after Agnew became vice president. On October 10, 1973, Agnew pleaded no contest to a single count of tax evasion, a felony, and was fined $10,000 and given three years on probation. He resigns from office that same day, and Nixon replaces him with House Minority Leader Gerald Ford. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
The Atlanta Journal-Constitution is taking Georgia political coverage to the next level. Now, Georgia's smartest political team is adding Hall of Fame political broadcaster Bill Nygut. I am beyond thrilled to be joining the remarkable political team at the AJC. And with the year that we have unfolding in politics, it's going to be an exciting ride. Read Bill Nygut's expert insight on AJC.com and listen to the Politically Georgia podcast with me, Greg Bluestein, And me, Patricia Murphy. And me, Tia Mitchell. Hear new episodes every weekday. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The last tale of presidential malfeasance involves Bill Clinton. It starts with the Whitewater Scandal, a failed land development venture involving vacation properties along the White River in Arkansas. Whitewater. The Whitewater Controversy. Whitewater. Whitewater. The Whitewater Affair. The President, the First Lady, a bad real estate deal, a failed SNL. In August 1994, Kenneth Starr is appointed independent counsel to look into the matter. While 15 people would ultimately be convicted of crimes involving Whitewater, Neither Clinton nor his wife Hillary are ever charged. What brings Clinton perilously close to indictment is the false testimony he gave during a deposition. This occurs on January 17, 1998, while Clinton is president. He's required to testify in a sexual harassment lawsuit filed against him by Paula Jones, a former Arkansas state employee. The suit is later dismissed, but it sets an important precedent. In Clinton v. Jones, the U.S. Supreme Court says sitting presidents are not immune from civil litigation involving something they may have done before taking office. The deposition is held at the Washington law offices of Clinton's attorney, Robert Bennett. It lasts about six hours. And well into questioning, Clinton is asked about his relationship with former White House intern Monica Lewinsky. Clinton's answer. I have never had sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky. I have never had an affair with her. So if that didn't happen between Clinton and Lewinsky, the president testified truthfully. Just days after the deposition, allegations involving Clinton and Lewinsky became national news. On January 26, 1998, Clinton, with his wife Hillary standing by his side, addresses the nation. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Ms. Lewinsky. Independent counsel Kenneth Starr turns his attention away from Whitewater to Clinton's testimony in his deposition in the Jones case. And Clinton gives videotaped testimony for a federal grand jury on August 17, 1998. And just hours before that testimony, FBI agents informed the independent counsel's office that genetic markers from a semen stain found on one of Lewinsky's dresses match Clinton's DNA. During his testimony, Clinton famously says this. That statement is a completely false statement. Whether or not Mr. Bennett knew of your relationship with Ms. Lewinsky, the statement that there was no sex of any kind, in any manner, shape or form with President Clinton was an utterly false statement. Is that correct? It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. Clinton finally comes clean to the nation later that day in an address from the White House. Good evening. This afternoon in this room, from this chair, 
I testified before the Office of Independent Counsel and the Grand Jury. I answered their questions truthfully, including questions about my private life, questions no American citizen would ever want to answer. Still, I must take complete responsibility for all my actions, both public and private. And that is why I'm speaking to you tonight. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. Kenneth Starr would be replaced as independent counsel by Robert Ray, and all signs point to Ray obtaining an indictment against Clinton for perjury as soon as Clinton's term as president ends. But on his last day in office, Clinton and his attorneys work out a deal with the independent counsel's office. With Ray agreeing not to pursue charges, Clinton admits he gave false testimony under oath. The president also agrees to pay $25,000 in fines and to accept a five-year suspension of his Arkansas bar license. Here's Ray announcing the settlement. 15 months ago, I promised the American people that I would complete this investigation promptly and responsibly. Today, I fulfill that promise. President Clinton has acknowledged responsibility for his actions. He has admitted that he knowingly gave evasive and misleading answers to questions in the Jones deposition and that his conduct was prejudicial to the administration of justice. He has acknowledged that some of his answers were false. The nation's interests have been served and therefore I decline prosecution. This matter is now concluded. May history and the American people judge that it has been concluded justly. Thank you very much. So as you can see, we've had some close calls with presidents being right on the brink of indictment, but it's never happened in our nation's history. If the past is prologue, then the odds are Trump will avoid indictment just as Nixon and Clinton did. But this game isn't over, not by a long shot. Some scholars who argue that a former president can be charged point to a line in the Constitution. It says that even a president who's been convicted during an impeachment trial, quote, shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to the law. They argue that line suggests that presidents can be charged for misconduct once they've left office. Trump could argue that he's immune from prosecution because he was president at the time all this occurred. That's what he's argued consistently in recent years as he's faced legal challenges. There's a Justice Department memo that says a sitting president cannot be indicted. The idea is that a president would carry out his or her duties a lot differently if they were constantly worried about the threat of prosecution. The DOJ memo, however, makes no mention as to whether presidents can be prosecuted for something they did in office after they leave the White House. Over the past few years, Trump's lawyers have raised a lot of immunity claims, and judges have tossed each one of them. In the Trump versus Vance case they lost, 
they even made this claim before the Federal Appeals Court in New York City. During arguments, Appeals Court Judge Denny Chin refers to this claim Trump made during a 2015 campaign stop in Iowa. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Here's Chin questioning Trump lawyer William Consovoy. What's your view on on the, the Fifth Avenue example? Local authorities couldn't investigate, they couldn't do anything about it? I, I think once the, a president is uh, removed from office, the lo- any local authority, this is not a permanent immunity. Well, I'm talking about while in office. No. That's there, the hypo. There, I, I, Nothing could be done. That's your position. That is correct. Here again is Claire Finkelstein, an expert on presidential immunity. And his lawyers actually had the nerve to argue that that's correct, that he would not, could not be arrested, could not be stopped, and that he could engage in a, in a murderous rampage um, and that no one would have the right to stop him. And, and in the philosophy biz, we call that a reductio ad absurdum of their position. The position is so absurd that anyone can see that a sitting president should not be so above the law that he has the right to to start shooting people on Fifth Avenue. Like we said, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Manhattan DA's office could have access to Trump's tax records. Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion to the majority ruling. He says, quote, In our system of government, as this court has often stated, no one is above the law. Interestingly, Kavanaugh, a Trump appointee, was joined by Justice Neil Gorsuch, a fellow Trump appointee. Finkelstein says she wouldn't be surprised if Trump argues he can't be prosecuted because what he was doing was part of his presidential duties. But she doesn't think it'll work. So presidents do a lot of things while they're in office in their personal capacity. And there's no immunity when presidents violate the law in their personal capacity. The immunity, as the cases have shown, exists only with regard to official capacity actions. So that's the question. In many cases, was the president acting in his personal capacity or in his professional capacity? Now, trying to win an election is the quintessential personal capacity act. The president in that case is a candidate. He's not acting qua president of the United States. He's acting as a candidate who's trying to win re-election. So when the president pressured Georgia officials to come up with more votes in order to change the course of the election, he has no immunity for any such action because it's purely a personal capacity action. There is really not a lot of debate around this. George Washington University law professor John Banzaff agrees. I think Trump may come up with some kind of argument saying that you can't indict him uh, for acts which he did while he was still president. That came up uh, many years ago with regard to Nixon. It came up uh, later with regard to some of Trump's earlier, I would say, shenanigans or goings on. And I think the majority view seems to be that, yes, you can indict a president, not while he is in office, but after he has left office and become a private citizen. And the the fact that a president is in much more of a position to do harm 
and to do something like change the outcome of a state election and indirectly a federal election because of his position of power uh, makes it all the more strong that, in fact, he should be subject to some kind of criminal sanction. Finkelstein says charges should be brought against Trump if they're warranted. I think that would be an excellent precedent. Um, It is very important that at the very least, presidents understand that they may be subject to indictment after they leave office. There really isn't any constitutional argument against indicting a a former president as long as we're not talking about official business. Generally speaking, a prosecutor brings a case when she or he has a case to bring. Political fallout is, again generally, not a factor. But as we've said, that's not the case here. Prosecuting Trump has implications far beyond that prosecution, and of course, not prosecuting Trump has a whole other set of implications. Greenberg, the Rutgers historian, sees both sides of the argument as to whether criminal charges should be filed. We don't turn politics into legal punishment. Uh, And, you know, by and large, that's a sound way of thinking. The problem, though, arises, what about when you do have a president who does engage in pretty severe um, and dangerous lawbreaking in a way that itself threatens democracy? So then you have a dilemma. Well, if you if you don't punish it, you're weakening democracy or you're creating problems for your democracy. But then if you do punish it, is there are you also maybe encouraging the other side to see the law as merely an instrument of politics, which is not something you want to do. So I think although I personally do think Trump's uh, offenses were such that they should be prosecuted. Uh, you know, I do recognize it's a delicate question, and we don't want to become a country where former presidents are regularly or semi-regularly brought up on charges once the other party gains power. That 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 would be bad for democracy. So there are some difficult questions here. Here's Professor Van Zaff again. And I think the weight of the argument is, yes, if a president uh, commits a clear crime while he is president, particularly one that takes advantage of the fact that he is president, threatening somebody with prosecution for a crime if they don't do what he wants, makes uh, prosecution all the more important. But again, the the key question, the first question that's going to come up is, can they issue an indictment? And I think the great weight of the evidence is, Yes, they can. District Attorney Fonnie Willis tells us in an interview she sees a battle royale in the trial court and on appeal if immunity arguments are raised. We'll have many, many days of legal arguments. Um, A judge, and my guess is even the Supreme Court of Georgia, will weigh in on that issue. Um, I do not think that executive immunity would protect against prosecution in this case. When Willis talks about battling immunity arguments, it sure does sound like she's thinking of an indictment. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song. 
and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. With all that's come out during the select committee hearings, many people are calling on U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland to bring federal charges against Trump. That's one option. The other option is to decide to basically punt um, in favor of the prosecution in, in Georgia, which would be a totally reasonable thing to do. It's provided for in the guidelines in the Department of Justice. It happens all the time, uh, mainly to... Um, save on prosecutorial resources. And so at some point, he's got to look at, well, what's Georgia doing? How strong is that case in relation to the strength of the case that's being made on the federal side? That's New York attorney Nick Ackerman again. He's got no business interfering in Georgia's internal elections. He's got no business telling the secretary of state what to do. He's got no business telling the governor to you know, decertify the election and call in the legislature to put in new electors. So there's a whole series of arguments that that just don't apply in Georgia, which gives it, in my mind, at least at this point, the stronger case. You've got things like fraud in there that that would fit the bill here. Um, so yeah, and in this particular DA. I mean, she's no, you know, she's no shrinking violet and she's no newcomer to RICO charges. So that's why I think this is this is the case to watch. You're right in the middle. You're right in the middle of the best case down there. Like we said at the end of episode five, the DA's office notified at least two prominent Georgia Republicans that they are targets of the grand jury investigation. One is state Republican Party chairman David Schaefer. The other is Burt Jones, a state senator who's also Georgia's Republican nominee for lieutenant governor. And now we know that Willis has told the other 14 fake electors that they too are potential targets. This was revealed in recent court filings. They include Joseph Brannon, treasurer of the state GOP, assistant treasurer Vicki Consiglio, assistant GOP secretary Ken Carroll, Mark Hennessy, an Atlanta car dealership CEO, Atlanta lawyer Brad Carver, and Mark Amick, who sits on the Georgia Republican Foundation's Board of Governors. Lawyers representing 11 of the electors have filed a motion asking McBurney to quash the subpoenas. Almost as soon as Jones' name became public, his lawyers filed a motion to disqualify D.A. Willis from investigating Jones. The motion notes the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor who's running against Jones this November is Charlie Bailey, he once worked with Willis in the Fulton DA's office. 
It turns out that Willis's campaign gave a $2,500 contribution to Bailey's campaign on January 31st of this year. Then, on June 14th, Willis hosted a fundraiser for Bailey at a natural foods grocery store in Atlanta. This is six weeks after the start of the special purpose grand jury. The motion also moves to disqualify Nathan Wade, an Atlanta attorney who has been named a special prosecutor during the special purpose grand jury investigation. Wade contributed $1,000 to Bailey's lieutenant gubernatorial campaign on June 30th. The motion includes a photo of a flyer for the fundraiser, and it says because, quote, District Attorney Fonnie Willis is hosting it. She was not acting in her capacity as a private citizen. The motion states, quote, This support may otherwise not have been an issue if she and her office had not simultaneously initiated special purpose grand jury proceedings against Mr. Bailey's sole opponent, Mr. Jones. This is a blatant effort to sway the outcome of the election in Mr. Bailey's favor. Therefore, D.A. Willis should be disqualified. Jones' lawyers, Bill Dillon and Hannah Clapp from the Taylor English law firm, are alleging Willis has a clear conflict of interest. The matter is before Judge Robert McBurney, who is overseeing the grand jury investigation. The motion also gives McBurney another option. It says he can issue an order sealing the special purpose grand jury's recommendations until after the November 8th elections. Remember, Willis previously vowed that if the investigation isn't wrapped up by the time early voting begins in October, she'll pause work until after the elections. So how much of a big deal is this? This is the only country that has elected prosecutors. And some would argue that this goes for the territory, that if you have politicians as prosecutors, and if they have money, they're going to give it to other politicians, and uh, that they have a First Amendment right to do that, that they can exercise free speech. That's Steve Bright, the former director of the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta. He's now a professor at both Georgetown and Yale Law Schools. But regardless of that, uh, it's a monumental blunder with regard to the special grand jury, because there was already people arguing that it was politically motivated and pointing out that she was a Democrat and that Fulton County was very Democratic. And this just feeds right in and in some ways uh, validates that criticism. And it really undermines the legitimacy and credibility of the special grand jury's work. It's hard to believe that the district attorney was as uh, tone deaf as uh, she was to sponsor this fundraiser and also make these very generous contribution uh, to the campaign. Bright said, even so, there's not enough there to justify disqualifying Willis and her office from Jones's portion of the case. Even so, the optics of this? One wonders, what was she thinking? I mean, what was she thinking uh, to have that uh, fundraiser uh, right at the same time that she's initiating this special grand jury? Uh, This is a time when one would hope that the uh, prosecutor would, uh, you know, adopt a uh, Caesar's wife approach not to do anything which might raise any questions. Lawyers have to be concerned about appearances. uh, And how does this look to the average person out there? And uh, obviously there was no consideration of that at all here because it looks terrible. 
I, it's hard for me to imagine that anyone looking at this would not uh, have that that uh, feeling about it. I mean, really. Atlanta criminal defense attorney Jack Martin sees it this way. Well, you know, she's a Democrat, and uh, it's not surprising that she supports other Democrats. Um, just because you become a district attorney doesn't mean that you forfeit your ability to prosecute somebody in the other party just because they're in another party. Um, you know, it, it might be a question of whether they've gone, she's gone beyond that in, in absolutely, you know, holding uh, fundraisers for uh, somebody involved. And Martin says that Willis could decide to recuse herself and turn it over to another prosecutor, maybe another DA or someone in the state attorney general's office. Also, just to be clear, the January 31st campaign contributions by Willis and Wade were made before the special purpose grand jury was even convened. And now we know that the DA's office informed Jones that he was a target on July 6th, about three weeks after Willis's fundraiser for Bailey. Anna Green Cross, an attorney representing the Fulton DA's office, pointed out that the fundraiser for Bailey was when he was competing in the Democratic runoff for lieutenant governor, before anyone knew who would be going head-to-head against Jones in November. That said, we've known for a while now that the special purpose grand jury was focusing on the slate of fake electors. In a recent court filing, the DA's office said there is no merit to the disqualification motion. It adds that Jones's motion fails to point out any single action taken by Willis that was motivated by political bias or personal interest. Also, quote, routine campaign support does not amount to a conflict of interest. It says Jones and the other 15 potential targets are being investigated for participating in the creation of a document that identified them as, quote, duly elected and qualified electors for president and vice president. And that document was submitted to the National Archives. The motion adds that Jones has been treated identically to each of the other unofficial electors. Judge Robert McBurney heard arguments this past Thursday. During a two-hour hearing, he scolded Willis for holding the fundraiser for Bailey. It's a what-are-you-thinking moment. Um, The optics are horrific. If you are trying to have the public believe that this is a nonpartisan, driven by the facts, I'm not here to critique decisions. The decision was made. But if we are trying to maintain confidence, that this investigation is pursuing facts in a nonpartisan sense. No matter who the district attorney is, we follow the evidence where it goes and ignore the fact that I hosted a fundraiser for the political opponent of someone I've just named the target. That, that strikes me as problematic, maybe not from an actual conflict level, but if we are at a cocktail party and people are asking, do you think that this is a fair and balanced approach to things? Um, I, I do. Well, how do you explain this? How does one explain? I mean, that, that, that's the concern I'm working through, is that it's not a lowercase a appearance. <laughs> it's like a capital A with flashy lights fundraiser district attorney for the political opponent of someone I've named the target of my investigation, where I'm the legal advisor to the grand jury, and I'm on national media almost nightly talking about this investigation. It, that's problematic. Despite that, McBurney pressed Jones' lawyer, Bill Dillon, about what exactly a fair solution was. We're expecting McBurney to issue a ruling in the days ahead. 
McBurney made two other notable decisions at the hearing. First, he told a lawyer for 11 of the 16 alternate electors that her clients must honor their subpoenas and testify before the grand jury. The electors had argued that they shouldn't be forced to come in and potentially incriminate themselves now that the DA's office has confirmed their targets. McBurney clarified that the electors could still plead the Fifth Amendment, refuse to answer questions on the grounds that it may incriminate themselves. He also made another important promise, no October surprises. If the special grand jury wraps up its investigation this fall, McBurney said he'll hold off on releasing its final recommendations until after the elections. But I want to make it clear now in front of everyone, what I've heard from the district attorney's office as well, there is no plan for the, there's no plan for a date right now. Anyway, it's not knowable. Um, If the way the investigation flows, insofar as it stays with this district attorney's office and this special purpose grand jury, um, that grand jury disgorges its final report somewhere near the election, it will not be published and released until after the election. In the previous episode, we told you that U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina challenged his subpoena to appear before the special purpose grand jury. A hearing for Graham's motion to quash was initially scheduled for last Wednesday in Greenville, South Carolina. Then it was moved to Charleston. Then both sides reached an agreement in which Graham agreed to accept service of his subpoena to testify while preserving his right to challenge it in Fulton County. And yet another development, they seem to be popping up multiple times a day now, a New York judge has ordered Rudy Giuliani to testify before the special purpose grand jury. A court filing disclosed that Giuliani didn't show up at a hearing set for July 13th to show cause why he shouldn't honor his subpoena. For that reason, New York Judge Thomas Farber ordered Trump's former personal attorney to appear before the Fulton County Grand Jury on August 9th or any other date so ordered by the court. Last week, U.S. Representative Jody Heiss of Georgia became the second member of Congress to challenge his subpoena. A lawyer for Heiss filed a motion on July 18th seeking to move the matter to federal court. She cites Heiss's status as a member of Congress and argues that the case should be heard before a judge in the U.S. District Court in Atlanta, not before Judge McBurney in Fulton County's Superior Court. We spoke about federal removal a little bit in Episode 4. The idea is that federal officials can transfer a criminal action brought against them in state court to federal court. That is, if the prosecution is, quote, for or relating to any act under color of such office. And as we've said, colorable means only a plausible argument needs to be made. Here's Attorney Jack Martin again explaining what the federal judge must decide. Well, there's two things that are important. One is whether the grand jury subpoena is inquiring about matters that are within the scope of Congressman Heitz's duties. Now, if it was a matter that had nothing to do with his congressional duties, such as creating or cooperating in regard to creating false certifications of, of electors or other issues that deal with a crime or not anything that is part of their federal duties, I, I think that but what it gives is the, the opportunity for a federal judge to review those claims whether or not he has any type of federal immunity in a forum that 
is not is protected from type of state bias that might affect those such procedures. The case was assigned to U.S. District Judge Lee May in Atlanta. A hearing is set for the afternoon of July 25th. Congressman Heist is a vocal proponent of the Stop the Steal movement. In late 2020, he joined a Texas legal challenge seeking to invalidate Georgia's election results at the Supreme Court. That failed. If ever the consent of the governed at the ballot box is violated, then we are in serious, serious trouble. And it is my deep conviction that Brad Raffensperger has massively compromised the right of the people at the ballot box. He also introduced an objection to Georgia's electoral college vote hours after the January 6th insurrection. Heiss is close with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. The two worked alongside one another for years in the House Freedom Caucus. And Heiss was in the White House a few days before Christmas 2020 with Meadows, Attorney Rudy Giuliani, and about a dozen other Republican members of Congress. According to testimony provided by Cassidy Hutchison, the former top aide to Meadows before the January 6th committee, the group allegedly discussed organizing a slate of alternative Republican electors. Heiss also challenged Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in May's GOP primary. He had Trump's endorsement and echoed much of the misinformation about widespread election fraud in Georgia. But he lost big to Raffensperger. We don't know exactly what the special grand jury wants to ask Heiss, but it's certainly not surprising that they'd want to talk to him. Next on Breakdown, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his deputy Gabe Sterling talk about their experiences appearing before the special purpose grand jury and what it was like being in the national spotlight for the January 6th committee hearing. Well, it's interesting that a few months ago, people were still asking about State Farm. Uh, that's where that allegation that the ballots were being stuffed. Well, we've now, you know, have had many opportunities and, and a lot of information out there that, first of all, we looked at it, the FBI looked at it, and the GBI looked at it. And if you don't trust any of those three sources, President Trump handpicked someone to look at that himself, and that was Bobby Christine, who came up from Savannah as the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District, became acting U.S. Attorney of the Northern District. He looked at that specifically, and he dismissed it. But obviously, when it gets out there on the evening cable news networks, then it doesn't ever really get taken back off. They just move on to something else. As always, thank you so much for listening. We will continue to drop an episode every week over the next few weeks. Then we'll come back from time to time whenever major news breaks in this story. And I think you can count on that happening. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, particularly our journalism, please subscribe to the AJC. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Tamar Hallerman. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. 
It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.